are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. With my family here, and we are on the eastern coast of Maine having a little family vacation. Has it been fun? Yes. Yes? Yeah. Yeah? A lot of fun? A lot of fun. Have you been doing a lot of fun things? Yes. Yep. Has the rain got us down? Yes. Nope. No? We got a little bit wet yesterday, <laughs> yeah, didn't we? Got we got wet yesterday, yes, yeah. yes. Had to run through the rain. So say hi to everybody for the Q&A. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Have a great show. All Love right. you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 <laughs> All right. Those are my grandkids, my wonderful wife, and my daughter-in-law, and welcome to the Enduring Word question and answer program for Thursday. I guess it is June 20. 9th? I guess that's what it is, June 29th. And uh, as you can tell, I'm not at my home on the west coast of the United States. I am all the way over on the other side of the country, almost as far away in the continental United States as I can get from uh, my house on the west coast of the United States. I'm on the east coast of the United States up in Maine. And we're here enjoying a lovely time with some wonderful people uh, who've invited us to come and stay at their home. And we're making a great family vacation of it. And to be honest, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do the Q&A today uh, because, look, it's a family vacation. I didn't want it to be a big interruption for it. But just the way the week came together, it found out that it would be good and no problem for us to do it. They're going to go out and do something fun, look at some shops and stuff that I really don't care for. And uh, they're going to have a wonderful time with that while I'm doing this and spending time with you, our YouTube audience. I hope you'll forgive the sunglasses here. Uh, It's not my normal practice to wear sunglasses when we do one of these YouTube live Q&As, but here's the thing. If I didn't wear the sunglasses, I'd be squinting all the time like this, and we just kind of decided that it would be better to run with the sunglasses instead of the perpetual squint. So uh, today on our question and answer program, we've got a couple things to announce. First of all, I do just want to say thank you. Thank you for everybody who participated in last week's kids question and answer program. It was just great. It was a tremendous time of us getting together and having videos from kids asking questions. And then I answered the questions. And we also took some questions from some kids in the live chat and plus a few questions left over. So what an amazing time we had. Uh, It's the kind of thing, look, I'm going to be honest with you. We we didn't get a ton of viewers for that. Uh, Neither during the live chat, nor did we have a ton of viewers uh, afterwards after it. But I thought it was great, and it was so good, and we're going to do it again uh, once or twice a year. We're going to do a kids' Q&A. I thought that was a tremendous idea that our staff came up with, and uh, we'll look for a way to practice that again. You can see that the ocean, there's a bay right behind me, and you may see some ships, some boats go back and forth. Let's see what happens with that. I'm not in control of that. I don't know if you can hear out in the distance the lawnmower running. Wouldn't you know, just as we begin the live Q&A, Somebody starts doing some landscaping nearby, but look, that's fine. There's no problem. We're enjoying the great outdoors here on the coast of Maine in the United States. One more announcement before I get into our lead question. Uh, It's simply this. We're having an Enduring Word cruise this October. It goes from October 4th to the 16th. That's just a few months away. Now, the only reason I'm announcing this is because we've had one 
balcony room make itself available. And so if you want to get that balcony room, you can get it. If you don't take it, then it's going to be lost to our group. They'll give it to somebody else uh, as a passenger on board, uh, which again, which is fine, but we just thought we'd make it known to our enduring word audience. And um, what we really just want to know is if you want to be a part of the Enduring Word Cruise coming up this October, you got to jump on it right away because I believe that if we have until tomorrow to let them know that somebody's going to take it. And if you're interested, just simply go here, go to EnduringWord.com slash cruise. We're going to put the link in the uh, show notes, in the details, in the live chat, so you can click on that. Uh, again, our Enduring Word cruise coming up this year, October 4th through the 16th. We've had one balcony room open up, and uh, if someone doesn't step forward to take it from our group, they're just going to give it back to the cruise. Fine. I, I do want to let you know, too, we're putting our final touches on an Israel tour that I'll be leading with Enduring Word next year uh, at the end of October, beginning of November. We're just getting the dates and the tour guides nailed down for that. And uh, we're looking for it. It's going to be a tremendous time. Okay, with all of that out of the way, uh, here is, um, oh, Nathan, I just want to tell you, that's the wrong link. Put up a link for EnduringWord.com slash cruise. Uh, the tours one, I, I don't know that that link works, but I know that EnduringWord.com slash cruise works. Sorry, I, I sent our moderator the wrong link. And so what did he do? He put up the wrong link because I sent him the wrong link. That's how it goes. Okay. Um, here we go. Our lead question for today, I've encapsulated it under this headline, is it greedy to want justice? You'll see what I mean. Let me read the question to you. It comes from Smitha. I hope that's the right way to say the name. Uh, from Smitha via Facebook asks this question. Pastor, I have one more question. In Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 15, a man is asking Jesus, to tell his brother to share his inheritance with him. That means that the other person is greedy and didn't want to share his inheritance. Why did Jesus then say, beware of greed? Wasn't the other person greedy who came to Jesus and needing justice? What if he really was poor and that he had nothing and all the wealth was held by his brother? I hope you can see why I chose this particular headline for this question from Smitha. Uh, they're taking the occasion in Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13, where Jesus refused to make a judgment between a case that came before him. There were, was a man who came to him and said, Lord, uh, my brother isn't treating me fairly regarding the inheritance. I, I want you to decide this. I want you to, to tell him to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, let's just read the passage and you'll get the idea here. Luke chapter 12, verses 13, 14, and 15, we read this. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So here, just we have something very simply. A man comes to Jesus, although we need to understand something about the context. Jesus had just taught the multitude 
about our great value to God and the importance of standing for God as a disciple. And in the midst of that teaching, a man interrupted Jesus. You can almost see him raising his hand and saying, teacher, I I, I have a question here. Teacher, I've been waiting a long time and I need to get my question out to you. And this is what he told Jesus to do or asked Jesus to do. He said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, that interruption revealed that there was a problem between these two brothers. And according to the laws of that day, let's assume that there were two brothers in the family. If there were more, we don't hear about it. But the older brother would receive two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger brother would receive one-third of the inheritance. This is what I want you to understand. This man did not ask Jesus to listen to both sides of the story and then make a righteous judgment. He just said to Jesus, would you please decide this in my favor? Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Now friends, it's true that sometimes a request for justice is really a demand, give me what I want. And it's very possible that Jesus, being the son of God, being a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and if I could use this terminology of Jesus, a man who had the gifts of the Spirit, it's possible that Jesus knew that there was much more to this situation than this man was sort of letting on to. That's entirely possible. So Jesus had previously taught on having a full commitment. He taught on God caring for our needs. This man wasn't listening. He said, I've got to get what's mine. And Jesus, you have to make sure that I get what's mine. You see, if both of those brothers would have understood and lived their life according to the principles that Jesus had just explained to them, they wouldn't be having an argument. The the brother who had more would have been ready to share what he had, and the brother who had less wouldn't think that that having more was the key to his being happy. So how did Jesus reply? If you look at it right there, I believe it's in verse 14. Jesus said, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Now friends, please don't gather from this that Jesus is unconcerned about justice. We know from the whole Bible that God, and we'll say God in the person of Jesus Christ, is very concerned about justice. This is of great and significant concern to the Lord. God cares about justice. But this is what Jesus understood. The covetousness in that man's heart, the man who was asking the question, the covetousness in that man's heart would do more harm to him than the injustice he was experiencing. And friends, this is something that we commonly don't consider. You know, it's possible for a person to fight for justice. And let's just say that it really is justice that they're fighting for, that they've been wrong and they fight and they fight and they fight. But even though it is a need, maybe it's not the deepest need in their life. That was the situation here. And based on this, we can tell that Jesus did not feel that it was his responsibility to judge every matter and to solve every problem. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, understood that there were some disputes that he just refused to become entangled in. That's why he gave the warning, 
take heed and beware of covetousness, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, look, let me get down to a, a straightforward answer to Smith's question. Is it greedy to want justice? Well, the desire for justice in and of itself is not greedy, but a desire or an insistence upon justice can mask greed and covetousness in one's heart. They can really feel that their greatest need is for them to obtain justice when really they have a much greater need, and that's for them to truly forsake covetousness in their life. And so, no, Smitha, it's not greedy to want justice. Listen, God is into justice, and we rejoice that in the end, in eternity's scales, every wrong will be set right, every injustice will be answered with justice. God will weigh it all out in the scales of eternity. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean that we don't do our best for justice on this earth. Of course we do. I think that's a Christian's responsibility. We should do the best we can for justice, but even our best is not going to be enough. And we can take rest in the fact that there is finally, in the end analysis, no injustice with God, no injustice in his universe. So this is what we remember. This is what we take heart in, uh, these things before the Lord. So um, again, yes, Christians should want justice. I think this is a fundamental part of just uh, wanting God's will in the world. God is very much into justice and Christians should be also. But yet as believers, we take great comfort in the fact that for number one, God knows what is justice and he knows the priority of justice in a particular situation. Look, let's just take it for granted that this man in Luke chapter 12 was being treated unjustly by his brother. You know, sometimes it's hard to tell from hearing one side of the story, but even if we take it for granted that that man was being treated unjustly, Jesus understood that that wasn't the man's greatest need. His greatest need was to deal with the covetousness that was in his heart, and that's why Jesus warned him. So, Smitha, I hope that's helpful for your question. Thank you for your question. I hope that answer gives you a little bit of help. And uh, now I'm going to continue on with the questions in the side chat after I take a little uh, cough drop to help with a little bit of a tired voice here in just a minute. So... Let's go to that now, and uh, I'm going to open up and see what's come in through our moderator here. Okay, the first question comes from Tem, who asks, uh, has a question, when Satan is cast out of heaven in Revelation 12, what does this mean? Okay, Tem, it's very interesting. Uh, I like how Donald Gray Barnhouse in his commentary, I believe it's his commentary in the book of Revelation, and I hope I'm remembering that commentator correctly. Look, friends, I read a lot of Bible commentaries, what a lot of people have written on different biblical passages, and so sometimes I can get my commentators confused. But I believe it was Donald Gray Barnhouse in his commentary on the book of Revelation, where he speaks that there were four falls of Satan. Okay, ready? Four falls of Satan. Number one, there was his fall from holy to profane. 
uh, that's when Satan fell and uh, he, he was no longer the anointed cherub that covers as he's spoken of there in uh, Ezekiel, I believe it is. Uh, he became a profane being. Um, so there's the fall from holy to profane. Then the book of Revelation describes the one you're talking about, Revelation chapter 12, where Satan is ejected from heaven and he no longer has access to heaven. I'll get to more of that in just a moment. Then the third fall of Satan is where he's taken from having access to the earth to the bottomless pit. Uh, that's described later on in the book of Revelation. And then the fourth and final fall of Satan is where he's taken from the bottomless pit. He organizes a brief rebellion on planet Earth. And then after that, he's cast into the lake of fire. That's the final fall of Satan, the fourth of the four falls of Satan. Now, this is why I'm telling you this. Uh, I believe, and look, this is the kind of thing that different Bible teachers and preachers have different understandings. You're asking me the question, so I'm giving you my perspective on this, but I do just want to acknowledge that this is something that different Christians have different opinions about. But here's simply how I'd say it. The only one of the four falls that has already happened on the calendar of God's unfolding plan of the ages is the first fall of Satan. Satan has fallen from holy to profane. I believe that Satan still has access to heaven, as we see in uh, the story of Job, where Satan accused Job before the throne of God. We see this from the titles in the book of Revelation, where Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them before God day and night. So it would appear to me, at least, that Satan still has access to heaven now. Uh, of course, he is the prince of the power of the air. The Bible says that he goes about the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So uh, he has access to earth, but I think also access to heaven. There's going to come a point in God's unfolding plan during the time that I would call the Great Tribulation, where Satan is ejected. I believe Jesus called it the Great Tribulation, but um, where Satan is ejected, no longer having access to heaven, as is restricted to earth, and then following the... Uh, exclusion of the bottomless pit, and then finally the lake of fire. So what you're talking about here in Revelation chapter 12 is that point, and I regard it in God's unfolding plan, future to this point, where Satan no longer is allowed access to heaven, but his domain is restricted to the earth. And that's part of the fury that Satan pours out upon the earth in the very last days. So Tim, I hope that's a helpful answer for you. Uh, let me go on to the next question from Now I Know, who asks, I heard from a Bible teaching that the angel of the Lord is Jesus himself. How come he is an angel? And is there a difference between the angel of God and the angel of the Lord, for example, in Judges chapter 6, verses 20 and 21? Okay, um, now I know, good question. Here's simply what you need to understand is that in the two dominant biblical languages, that would be ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek, actually Koine Greek, the uh, common version of Greek, as opposed to classical Greek or Attic Greek. So in biblical Hebrew and New Testament Greek, the word for angel is the same word for messenger. And so 
there isn't a technical word in those languages used to describe what we would call angelic beings. It just describes messengers. Now, most of the time, context, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the context tells us that this really is an occasion of, um, of a unique messenger, of an angelic being, what we would call an angelic being, a, a being that is not divine being, that is not human being, but truly is angelic being. So these messengers are sometimes angelic beings. There's a few places in the New Testament, and I believe the Old Testament as well, where that word messenger or agalos in um, Greek, I, I don't know what the word is in, in Hebrew, that, that word for messenger is applied to humans in some context. And then there's also the context where it's applied sometimes to God, God in a function of being a messenger. So sometimes in the Old Testament, God is his own messenger. He delivers the message himself. And many of these are occasions where we see in the Old Testament the angel of the Lord, or as you said here in Judges chapter 6, the angel of God, the messenger of God. And look, that's the way to remember it. Angel just means messenger, and sometimes God is his own messenger delivering the message. And so that's a simple way to understand it. Now, how do we know when it's an angelic being? How do we know when it's a human being? How do we know if it's God himself delivering the message? Friends, we just know based on context. We draw the context out, and there are certain contextual clues, like if there's worship involved, if people say they've seen God, if later on it says that a person saw or encountered the Lord himself in occasion, those are indications that we have the angel of the Lord in the person of God himself, and to get a little more technical, in the person of Jesus Christ. Because if God ever makes a, a physical appearance to people, he's doing it in the person of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Because of God the Father, it says no man has seen God at any time. And of course, God the Holy Spirit is non-physical, non-corporal. And uh, he has no physical body that can be seen. So I hope that's helpful for you there. Now I know, um, I'm gonna go on to the next question, but we have another visitor here. It's my son, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Family yeah. vacation going all right? It's going great. We're yeah. having a nice time, aren't we? We really are, yeah. yeah. And the view is fantastic. Even though it's overcast, it's still great. We're happy that's not raining. Rained yes. a lot yesterday. We did have a little bit of rain yesterday. And yeah. has it been my imagination? Did I feel a drop or two out here? Or is that just my imagination? It's your imagination. Okay, good, yeah. good. If yeah. it does start to rain, I'm going to have to scramble and get in. But yes. uh, we're having a good time with this. Yes. Uh, do you want to sit in and for a question or two? You can no, grab a chair. Okay. No, I'll, All let right. you, I'll let you continue right. with that. You're quite capable, though, but another Thank time. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank okay, you. good. All right. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks. All right. Uh, next question comes from David, who asks, prior to the new covenant, was anyone born again or regenerated? Oh, David, this is a great question because this gets at a core dividing line in understanding the Bible. There's an approach to theology uh, that is commonly called today covenant theology. I have to say, I don't favor that name because I place great importance on the covenants that God declares 
uh, in understanding his unfolding plan of the ages. So I'm very big on the idea of covenants. But the idea of covenant theology isn't based just on the revealed covenants, but it places huge emphasis on what I would say are the implied covenants, in particular, and implied covenants in the Bible. And to me, it places such great weight on these implied covenants that it's, uh, it's out of order. Now, those mostly from the Reformed world who believe in covenant theology, who often may also believe, and again, these, two, these beliefs don't always go together, but sometimes they do, that the church has replaced Israel in God's unfolding plan, they would say, yes, that before the new covenant, people were regenerated just as they are, or nearly as they are under the new covenant. But David, I want you to know, I don't think the Bible teaches that. When you take a look at the new covenant passages, I'm thinking predominantly of Jeremiah, I'm thinking of Ezekiel, I'm thinking of, uh, there's sections in Deuteronomy, there's passages in uh, Isaiah. When you're talking about these new covenant promises, I think that they make it pretty clear that it's not something that was functioning in Old Testament times. Now, is it possible that God would regenerate a person or forgive their sins or uh, give them the Holy Spirit in a similar manner to what he would do for believers under the new covenant? Of course, God is God and he can do anything. But the argument somebody has to make is not that there were a few believers who were regenerated as they would be under the new covenant. Not that there were a few believers who were filled with the Holy Spirit as they promised they would be under the new covenant. Not that there were a few believers who had the complete cleansing of sin as would be promised under the new covenant. Not that there were a few, but that it was universal among all who believed under the, under the world of faith, those who were made righteous by faith before the new covenant. And so, David, I would just want you to know, not, not only would I say no I believe it's a very important point of theology. And uh, I would be very interested to discuss that sometime with somebody who was into covenant theology. Because uh, I've been trying to do more and more reading on the subject of covenant theology uh, because I scratch my head at some of the conclusions. I honestly do. Uh, I, I just don't understand the weight that is placed upon an implied covenant. So something that's nowhere, or at least in my estimation, I know there may be disagreement, but in my estimation, something that is nowhere clearly stated in the scriptures that there is such a covenant. Look, there's a clear statement of a covenant that God made with Noah and all humanity. There's a clear statement of a covenant that God made with Abram, uh, Abraham and his descendants. A clear statement of a covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. A clear statement of a covenant that God made with David in the Davidicum. These things are clearly declared as covenants. And it just seems strange to me, it seems bizarre that the most important covenant in the views of those who believe in covenant theology, the covenant of grace, it seems very strange to me that the most important covenant would only be hinted at in the scriptures and never clearly stated. If it is the most important covenant, if it is the centerpiece of God's plan of the ages, then, then why isn't it clearly presented? Why does it have to be an inference made from systematic theology instead of something that's directly stated in the scriptures. 
So anyway, that's my perspective on that. Uh, I make a very clear dividing line, and I think that the benefits or the promises of the new covenant need to be understood. The promises of the new covenant include regeneration that is being born again, being made alive, the heart of stone being taken out and a person being given a heart of flesh, a complete forgiveness. That's rich in these new covenant passages. Um, a, A filling, a bestowal of the Holy Spirit. That's a promise under the new covenant. And believe it or not, the restoration of Israel is a common theme in these new covenant passages. And so I just regard myself I regard myself as someone who takes the new covenant seriously, as someone who believes that when Jesus sat with his disciples and presented to them the bread and the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, that he meant it and he was really establishing a new covenant. And if I can be so bold to say that the new covenant is really new, that it's just what it says it is. It's a new covenant. It's not a rehashing of the old. All right, enough with that. You can tell it's a little bit of a soapbox for me. Let me go on to the next question that's come in uh, on the live chat. Uh, Donald asks, what should the church do if it finds out that newly hired worship leader is living a sinful lifestyle? When the church members say sin is sin, we have musicians in the past with that lifestyle. Well, Donald, I would just say as a pastor, even though I'm not pastoring a congregation right now, I've had uh, decades of pastoral experience. Uh, This is the kind of thing that needs to be dealt with directly and uh, sooner rather than later. These things just don't go away. Now, the general attitude that the church has towards sin is this. And this has to do with somebody in leadership or if somebody's not in leadership. So leave the leadership question outside of this. But the general attitude that the church needs to have towards sin is this, is that we come near the struggling sinner and we stand with them and we support them and we help them and we bring them before the Lord again and again, and we're there to stand beside them as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have tremendous support in God's family for the struggling sinner. What we have much less patient for in the family of God, especially among leadership, is the rebellious sinner. The person who says, well, look, I I know you say this is sin, but I don't think it's sin, and I'm just going to keep on doing it. Friends, there's very little accommodation made for that in the church, and that needs to be dealt with directly. And so really, basically, I, I think that's the thing that needs to be determined. The difference between a struggling sinner and a rebellious sinner. I like the phrase that's sometimes used in the Old Testament, and I don't know if this is just in the King James Version or the New King James Version or other translations, but it talks about sometimes people who sin with a high hand. And that just means like sin in the face of God. You know, it's just kind of, you know, just saying, forget it, God, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Listen, um, a person like that has no business being in the leadership uh, among God's people. And that kind of sin needs to be dealt with. And let me give you a little bit of a warning. If it's not dealt with, the power of the Holy Spirit will be drained from the ministry, at least 
drained from its potential. Look, I've known God to do remarkable works even while certain leaders had terrible hidden sin in their life. Yet God was doing a great work. But I just stand convinced that it was still nothing compared to what God could have done in, uh, in better circumstances, if I could use that phrasing. So uh, there's going to be a hindrance to the work of God, but that person will also be heaping up condemnation for themselves. And you'll see that same, if I could say, approximate sin multiply throughout the congregation. If, if you have a situation of adultery in a church, especially in a church leadership, and if it's not dealt with properly and forthrightly, you can expect that there's going to be multiple adulterous situations in that church. There's just some kind of spiritual dynamic behind that. So that's the, uh, that's the advice that I would give to you. Thank you for that question. Uh, that comes from Donald. Next question comes from Barry, who asks... What was the issue with meat sacrificed to idols that required so much of Paul's concern? Well, Barry, that's a good question. Um, let me see if I can get at it here at the root of it. Uh, before I do get at the root of it, let me just give a greeting again to everybody here. C- can you tell that I'm not at my home on the west coast of the United States? I'm on the east coast of the United States. I'm about as far in the continental United States as you can get from my home on the west coast we've gone all the way across the country here on the coast of maine to have a wonderful family vacation we've been enjoying ourselves i didn't know for sure if i was going to do the q a today because look it's vacation it's family vacation but um you know what we've had a wonderful time together the group is occupied with some shopping and such which look to be honest i didn't really care to be a part of and so they're having their fun i'm having my fun right here with you and we're going ahead and continuing on with the q a on location today. Uh, it's 3.30 or so right now where I'm at. And so, uh, well, it's a great time we're having together. Okay, so here's the situation. We are talking about meat sacrifice to idols. Barry's asking this question. And why it's such a big deal. Well, Barry, let me explain it to you this way. It was a big deal for a few reasons. First of all, because it dealt with something that was an important issue in the Roman world of the first century for Christians, and that was idolatry. There was idolatry everywhere. In any sizable city, especially in Corinth and in Rome, where Paul wrote the letters where he speaks about meat sacrifice to idols, in those cities, there were temples everywhere to idols. And idolatry was a big issue for Christians. And Christians were to be known for being set apart from the idolatry of the world. Okay, there's that on the one side. On the other hand, there was a lot of meat sold at meat markets or restaurants that were associated with idol temples. You see, look, in those days, they kind of thought like this. A a farmer says, or someone who owns a cow, well, I'm going to kill this cow for meat. Instead of butchering it, I'll have the priest down at the temple of Zeus butcher it. I give him a little piece of it. He does the butchering. I get what's left, or I can sell it at the meat market or the restaurant. So oftentimes these pagan temples would have a place of sacrifice to the pagan god. They would have a restaurant where you could get a nice steak dinner, or they had a meat market also 
where you could get the meat to go. So here was the question. If the piece of meat, if the roast in front of me, that beef shoulder roast, that tri-tip roast from California, my part of California, that's what we like. We like that tri-tip roast. Uh, if that tri-tip beef roast in front of me is there, if it was sacrificed, if it was part of an animal that was sacrificed to Zeus, is there something impure, or idolatrous about me eating it? And look, Barry, here's the funny thing about it, is that Christians had different opinions. There were some Christians that said, yes, that, that meat has been dedicated to an idol. You can't eat that meat. You're eating something that's been dedicated. You are um, paying money to a pagan temple for that meat. You're supporting paganism in our town. And then there's other people who said this. They said, look, who cares? Z Zeus isn't even real. Zeus is a figment of people's imagination. This is good meat at a good price. If I want to eat it, I'll eat it. Now, that's why that whole issue between the things that, the, obviously, in our modern day and age, the issue of meat sacrificed to idols is a non-issue in and of itself. However, it is a big issue for the principles that it gives. And the principle of, is that things that the Bible doesn't command us specifically one way or another. There is no direct command in the Bible. You are forbidden to eat meat sacrificed to idols or it's okay for everyone to eat meat sacrificed. There's no command either way. And that's why it's a good example of places where Christians, believers, believers who are right with God can have different consciences about this issue and God can bless and honor no matter what their difference of conscience is. But Christians need to know how to love each other and treat each other with respect, even with these differences. So Barry, I help, hope that helps you a little bit in understanding this issue of meat sacrificed to idols. Okay, next question comes from Lynn. When things in life aren't well, I tend to feel God is upset with me. Then I start feeling so condemned. Any advice? Thanks for your time and your commentary. You are a blessing. Well, Lynn, thank you. I'm so pleased to hear that if my Bible commentary has been of any help to you, that makes me very happy. You know, some of our viewers or listeners might not be aware of the fact that I have a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, 4.4 uh, million words, and it's available absolutely free. Absolutely free. Just go ahead. You can take it. You can use it. Uh, it's helpful for a lot of people. It's just clear and simple enough to where everyday believers use it. Uh, but I think it takes the Bible serious enough that I, pastors I know who've been pastors for 40 plus years use that commentary all the time as well. So anyway, um, Lynn, I, I want to say this directly, but gently. So don't, please don't think I'm, I'm piling. I'm just trying to describe your situation. Lynn, you're trapped in legalistic thinking. You think that God's opinion, God's heart, God's attitude, God's disposition towards you is based on your performance. Lynn, that is about the definition or one of the good definitions of legalism. What you have to understand, Lynn, is that God's attitude, his heart, his disposition towards you is based not on who you are and not on what you have done, but it's based on who Jesus Christ is and on what Jesus Christ has done. 
So I think that's really the core of it for you right there, Lynn, is that you just have to realize that um, you're not in the situation where, um, do you know the old picture of somebody picking the petals of the flower and saying, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You know, there's many Christians, they live their Christian life basically that same way. Today, he loves me. Oh, isn't it wonderful? I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl. God loves me. Tomorrow, oh, I said or thought or did something bad. He loves me not. They go back and forth between the two. Why? Because it's all based on their performance. Lynn, I've got good news for you. Your standing with God is based on his grace. It's not based on your performance, but it's based on grace alone, the wonderful, powerful grace of God. And so rest in that. Remember that. Ask God to make that real to your heart and your life. Okay, next question comes from Leslie, who asks this. Hi, David. I am witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses, firstborn of all creation. They believe it shows that Jesus was born, that he was not internal. How can I adequately explain this verse to them? Can you help me in how to witness to them? Well, Leslie, great question. I'm glad that you asked it. Let me explain it to you just simply this. Firstborn in the Bible does not only refer to the person who's first out of the womb. Firstborn was a status as much it was a birth order. So when the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, it's not referring to him having a starting point in time. It refers to his status as preeminent. And there's a couple very distinct situations, such as with King David. Now, you know, David was the youngest of, what was it, eight brothers? He was, he was seven brothers away from being the firstborn. He was anything but the firstborn. Yet there's places in the scriptures where God calls David my firstborn. Why? Because it didn't have to do with order of birth. It had to do with status. In those cultures, the firstborn always had the preeminence. The firstborn was always out front. The firstborn was always in the position of favor. The firstborn always got a double portion of the inheritance. And so what in Colossians, where it simply calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, it just simply means that he is preeminent. He's number one. He is out in front of every, um, every created being. He is firstborn of all creation. And again, I think there's another example with the sons of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim, where the one who was not firstborn received the blessing and the status of firstborn. Why? Because in the Bible, firstborn refers to much more than just, it can mean just first one out of the womb, but there's also several situations where it refers to someone having the status of being preeminent and first in all things. So that's just simply what I would explain. And uh, look, I'll be honest with you, Leslie, I don't know that it would convince any of the Jehovah's Witnesses that you're talking about, but you need to be set on this answer for yourself, number one. And number two, you need to have just tremendous peace that the Bible is true and the understanding that Jesus Christ is God, not junior God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, the, uh, the Russellites, 
as they have erroneously claimed in the past, no, 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 no. Uh, Jesus Christ is God, and their resurrection of the old Aryan heresy uh, is of no benefit to them or good for the world. Thank you for that, Leslie. Let me go to the next question from Andrea, who asks, um, in Acts chapter 19, the disciples that Jesus talked to had not heard of the Holy Spirit yet. At what point in time did the church start to officially teach the Trinity? Well, that's really good, Andrea. Um, and I would just simply speak to it like this. The seeds, I, I, would, I would say, the, uh, maybe the seeds, so maybe that's not the best way. I, I would describe it. The truth of the Trinity is woven into the fabric of the New Testament. I think it took the church, the community of believers, a while to understand this. But you have to admit that people from a Jewish background that did not even know that there was a Holy Spirit didn't know much about the Old Testament as well because the Spirit of God is prominent in the Old Testament. Anybody who reads and understands the Old Testament is gonna understand that there's a very vital work of the Spirit of God. Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord in Zechariah. And that same principle, or the work of the Spirit is, is evident throughout many, many different passages. So here's just what I would wanna point out from that, Andrea, is that these people had big gaps in their knowledge in a lot of places, not just in this. And so I think it took a while, a good while, a hundred plus years, for the church to be able to articulate a understanding of the Trinity. But the truth of the twin Trinity is woven throughout the fabric of the New Testament. And I believe that that is seen very plainly, very clearly, that there is one God. Friends, please remember, uh, Bible-believing Christians are Trinitarians. They are not tritheists. They don't believe in three gods. They believe in one God in three persons. And that that one God is called Yahweh in the Old Testament. Uh, he's the covenant God of Israel, the triune God. And God the Father claims to be Yahweh, God the Son claims to be Yahweh, and God the Holy Spirit claims to be Yahweh. And these are legitimate claims, of course. And so that is a, a just sort of basic, fundamental way to understand some of the concepts of the Trinity. Thank you for that question, Andrea. Um, I see that in the chat, there's discussion on whether or not uh, baptism is necessary for salvation. So what does the scripture tell us regarding baptism and salvation? All right, I'll put it to you the way that I like to explain it to people. Is baptism necessary? Absolutely, yes, it's necessary. Well, what is it necessary for? Well, is it absolutely necessary for salvation? No, I can conceive, and I believe you could conceive and see in scriptures, some situations where somebody who was not baptized still went to heaven. You know, uh, a person, a person's in an airplane 
that's uh, beginning to crash. Maybe I shouldn't talk about this because we're going to get on an airplane tomorrow. But you could just consider somebody uh, receives Christ and trusts in Christ on an airplane that's going down to crash. And obviously, they don't have time to be baptized. And, and somebody might say, well, it's impossible for them to go to heaven. They haven't been baptized. No, of course not. And I don't know of anybody who would claim such a thing. But on the other hand, if I would say that baptism is not absolutely essential for salvation, I'll tell you this, baptism is essential for obedience. And friends, we gotta get rid of this thinking where we're asking the question, what's the bare minimum to be, a, to, to, to be saved, to get to heaven? And we need to think more about what is necessary to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Baptism is necessary to be an obedient disciple of Jesus Christ. And if somebody wants to look me in the eye and say that they don't care about being an obedient disciple of Jesus Christ, I legitimately wonder if they're saved at all. So Christians should have a much greater urgency about baptism, but not because it in and of itself is absolutely necessary for salvation. It's just necessary for obedience as a disciple of Jesus. And friends, isn't that enough? Hey, Christian, by taking the name Christian, you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Shouldn't you be an obedient disciple of Jesus? Well, are you in that position where you're saying, Lord, Lord, but you're not telling him? Uh, excuse me, but you're not doing what he tells you to do? God forbid. So Christians should be more urgent about baptism than they are. But that doesn't mean that we come to the place where we say that it's absolutely essential for salvation because we're saved by faith, not by works, uh, but works will um, accompany, accompany those, especially those who are dedicated to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and I hope you understand what I'm saying in this. How as believers, we just need to hold back a little bit about just asking the question, what's the bare minimum? What, 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 what do I have to do to be saved by the skin of my teeth? What's the very least I can do and still somehow make it to heaven? Listen, if that's your attitude, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. You, you need to come to Jesus Christ in terms of absolute, unconditional surrender to him and say, you're my master, you're my Lord, you're my savior, and, and I, with you helping me by the Spirit's power and the power of God's grace, I wanna follow you and obey you every day of my life. And look, you're gonna do it imperfectly. There's nobody who makes a perfect commitment to God, but that's a far cry from somebody who's just like, ah, tell me the least I can do and still somehow make it to heaven. No, we wanna be full on as disciples for Jesus Christ. Okay, let me look for further questions here. Tunul uh, Banan Shugotre asks, let's see here. Hello from Sweden. Where are you now? As I said before, I'm on the east coast of Maine. I am in the Stockholm Archipelago on an island called Storholmen. Uh, what shall I, as a straight man, tell a trans woman who wants to date me and considers me transphobic? Well, Tunul Banan Shugotre. First of all, say no. Tell them that you love them in Jesus' name, but that you'll, you'll pray for them to come to an awakening of uh, who they are in Jesus Christ, not who they are in a um, 
manufactured identity. I think that's just simply it. And as for accusations that you would be transphobic or whatever it would be, that just doesn't belong to you whatsoever. It just doesn't belong to you. It's just, people can accuse us of all kinds of things. Doesn't mean it's true. And we don't need to take such criticisms to heart. Next question comes from Ziboni, who asks, I pa- by the way, Tunnel Banan, Shugotre, I just want to say, this area of Maine reminds me of Stockholm and Jutteborg uh, very much. And so it's great to see the islands, very different from the coast, the west coast of the United States. This is kind of reminiscent of uh, the coast of Sweden, both east and west. All right, anyway, next question from uh, Zibonin, Zibonin asks, Hi, Pastor Guzik. How can we link the scriptural text with that of Numbers 27, the daughters of Zelophehad? Well, um, I, I think this shows that God cared um, for the inheritance rights of families, even families that didn't have sons. And he wanted their names to continue. So that's why he gave the inheritance rights to Zelophehad. Now, we're just undergoing a big revision of my commentary on numbers. And to be honest, I can't remember if what we have online right now is the old version or the new version. But I know I give it a really good treatment in the new edition of my numbers commentary. I just can't remember if that's what's already up on the commentary site. But really, it's about God ensuring the continuation of a family's property rights, even if they don't have any sons for children. Uh, Next question comes from... Okay, lightning round. Okay, let me get through these. Here we go. Man, my moderator's just killing me with these. Hey, lighten up on me, moderator, please. All right, here we go. Uh, Andrea Andrea asks, following up from kids' question and answer session, does God love angels even though he doesn't love Satan? Um, Andrea Andrea said, no, God doesn't love angels or angelic beings the same way he loves human beings because there's a common ground between humanity and deity that there is not between the angelic and the divine. So no, God does not love angels the way he loves human beings. Good question. Next question comes from Smitha. Hey, thank you for your question before. Uh, Old Testament sacrifices are done on the altar, but Jesus sacrificed on a cross and not on an altar. Um, Listen, Smitha, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, but if I remember right, the word for altar in the Old Testament simply means killing place. And if the cross was anything, it was a killing place. Yes, the cross is our altar. And that's exactly what it says there in um, Hebrews, that believers, we have an altar uh, as believers. And I believe that's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Again, coming back from the word for altar in the Old Testament, which I believe, I'm just doing it at the top of my head, so I hope I'm not mistaken. But to my memory, the word for altar in biblical Hebrew is simply killing place. And the cross was a killing place. Next question from Katie, who says, So Jesus is God. How do I understand the idea that he came down to sacrifice himself from himself? Well, Katie, uh, part of this is part of the mystery of the Godhead. Uh, We can understand and comprehend some of how the Godhead works together. But even though God is one, he's in three persons. 
And God the Father sent God the Son to make a sacrifice for humanity. Um, God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were working together in the work of salvation. And that's just something glorious, um, not always completely understood, but there, were, there was this divine cooperation in the Godhead, again, between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And um, yes, Jesus himself was the sacrifice, but he also, the, the Bible uses imagery on both sides. So the Bible very plainly says that Jesus was the sacrifice, but he was also the priest offering the sacrifice. And, and so sometimes imagery is used that if you were to hyper-literalize it, you would say it contradicts, but actually it's just looking at the diamond from different facets. So that's the best way I would explain that, Katie. Thank you for that question. Eric asks, uh, I try to spay... I try to pray in the spirit throughout the day. What should praying in the spirit look like? Could you please provide a practical application of praying in the spirit? Well, Eric, praying in the spirit can include many things. Praying in the spirit can include prayer that is simply led by and inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's praying in the spirit. Praying in the spirit can include, as it says in Romans, groanings that cannot be uttered. Just inarticulate, moaning almost before God that expresses an attitude of heart but without specific words. Prayer in the Spirit can also include uh, prayer in tongues, speaking in tongues, as the Bible says. Uh, He who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men but unto God and does so for edification, as it says, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So I don't think there's any one way to pray in the Spirit but there's several ways that we can fulfill that command to pray in the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit in our prayers, surrendered to the Spirit in our prayers, uh, inarticulate groaning can be prayer in the Spirit, and praying with the gift of tongues can be prayer in the Spirit. And then, uh, last question here from Dan says, I have a brother at my church that is reading and seems to be into preterism. I'm finding many people now trying to add something new to the word. I was speaking on 1 John chapter 2. Any thoughts on this? Okay, Dan, um, I think that the idea of preterism is wrong. Uh, The idea of preterism applies to understanding um, end times events. And basically it says that everything or almost everything that Jesus spoke about, especially in the Olivet Discourse, Uh, Matthew chapters 24 and 25, was fulfilled when the Romans conquered Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, I would disagree with that. Uh, I would say that what Jesus spoke about in the Olivet Discourse, uh, both in its recording in Luke and in Matthew, that it was foreshadowed, that it was exemplified by what happened, but that there's too much left unfulfilled for it to be truly fulfilled in AD 70. But preterism would say, no, it's all fulfilled back then. Now look, I believe that's wrong, and I could go through and we could talk about the reasons why I think it's wrong. But um, it's not just wrong, but it's not heretical. It's not believing a false doctrine, a false, excuse me. Hey, a drone just went by. I wonder if somebody's looking at us on a drone. Anyway. So it, it's, it's wrong, I would say, but it's not 
heretical. So um, I wouldn't think that they're teaching a false doctrine from it, uh, although it's incorrect teaching. But when we use that term false doctrine, usually we're reserving it for things that are heavier in nature than uh, something that's just a wrong interpretation. Uh, we have to be able to put things in priorities. We have to be able to grade things and say certain things are of greater importance and therefore to err in those things is of greater importance. And uh, that's something that I think a good ability to what the scriptures call rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what we need to be able to do. Rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, and part of rightly dividing is being able to give proper measure to different aspects of biblical truth. Well, that's going to be it for the day. Maybe my son Jonathan wants to come over and say goodbye to everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. God willing, and if we live, I'll be with you from the west coast of the United States next week. Uh, my son Jonathan won't be able to join us. Say hi to everybody. But um, we'll be back on the west coast. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you to the team for making this happen. And uh, God bless you. And we hope to see you again. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.